Something's happening! Open your mind real wide now. Freaking out, man. You are freaking out, man. Welcome aboard the Mothership Radio Show. I'm your host, Kevin Gassman. Tonight's episode, we welcome legendary musician and at the forefront of the surf rock movement of the 60s, Merrill Fankhauser. He also wrote a book, Calling from a Star. We'll talk about his book and his music and his explorations on the Hawaiian Islands, including UFOs on Maui, as well as some signals off the coast of Malibu that he used in his songs, which we will hear and I will play. So let's have our trays and seats in their upright position, seatbelts fastened, and let's take a ride with Merrill Fankhauser on the Mothership Radio Show. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. What if I told you I'd take you to a place you'd never been and do something to you that's never been done? Hello, Merrill. This is Kevin. How are you? Good, Kevin. Good to hear your voice. Yeah, and the same here. Um, I really appreciate your time today, and I really appreciate the music you sent me as well. Um, Oh, thank you. I'm so glad Greg put us together. Yeah, we were talking a little bit about UFOs and, and stuff like that, and uh, he was talking about the underwater ones, and you came to his mind, and uh, and I kind of oh. lit up because I never really discussed that on my show, and I've been talking uh, UFOs, aliens, since 2015, so um, I'm really I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you and uh, your experiences. Yeah, it's it's really interesting about the Maui anomaly and. You know, I went down there and even met some people that knew more history about it from the Shumash Indians. Yeah, so how did that come about? Like, what was the the situation that put you there to experience this? Well, I um, had been uh, doing a lot of UFO and paranormal-related shows, and it started out because my dad was a flight instructor and a pilot, and so I was always into aviation and, you know, interested in UFOs. And the uh, signals from Malibu thing came about when I was interviewed by an author, Michael Luckman. Do you know him? I'm not familiar with him, no. Okay, he put out a popular book, and uh, he interviewed me for his book, and then several months later, he called me up and he said, Merle, this uh, old retired Army uh, radio expert lives in the hills of Malibu, and he keeps picking up these weird signals on his ham radio that he, he had a rangefinder, and he said it's about four miles out in the ocean off of Malibu. And he said they're unlike anything he's ever heard. And he knew, you know, code and all sorts of odd, you know, radio transmissions. And Michael said, you better send these to Merle Fankhauser. So he sent them to me, and I listened to him. And uh, when he sent me the signals, Kevin, right away... I got the, the this feeling that I get a lot of times, you know, hey, this is something important. So I turned on uh, the signals, went out into my studio, sat down at the piano and put the headphones on. And I thought, I'd better record this. Mm-hmm. So I pushed record and I just started playing this kind of random piano part to the signals, and it was almost like the signals were playing me. And I I started out, didn't even realize it. I was playing an E minor, and later on, the, the violinist in my band said, well, you know, those signals are in E minor. And I checked it, and it was in E. He was right. Hmm. So I sat down, and I played this whole song, on the piano that I called Messages from the Dome because I found out that in the area out there where uh, this Army radio guy was picking up these signals, there's a dome-shaped, he called it a building, with pillars under there, and it's 
it's down about 700 feet in the water, in the ocean out there. And one day I was with producer William McEwen, and we were doing some recording, and we went into a restaurant and took a break. And uh, an older uh, security guard, and he was a Native American, he turned around and looked at me, and he recognized me. And to my surprise, he had my Return to Move album and some other older Hmm. ones. And he said, what are you working on now? And I said, well, I'm writing some tunes about these objects that have been seen going in and out of the water off of Malibu. And uh, there's uh, what they call a building out there. And he goes, oh, our tribe is known about that. Uh, You know, we were the, the Shumash Indians were the indigenous tribe that was along the coast here on the central coast for several thousands of years and he said when the ocean level was down they they could take their canoes out and stand on the top of this dome-shaped building they called it and fish off of it Hmm. And I thought, wow, that's Mm. really wild. And I looked at William McEwen, and he had a big smile on his face (laughs) because he loved stuff like that. He was a well-known producer that produced me, the Allman Brothers, uh, Steve Martin, and he discovered Steve Martin and produced his movies. Oh, wow. He was just a, I called him Bill, he was just a, a joy to work with and we did two albums together and he was really into my studies about the lost continent of Mu. So I ended up recording this one song called Messages to the Dome and got my band in here, put the bass and some drums and violin to it and guitar.
And then I noticed there were four minutes more of these signals left. So I did a whole other song, a little more up-tempo, sounding kind of like where I started in the early 60s. You know, a little... Surf music. Sci-fi surf music, in a way. I got to tell you, uh, Merle, I I was listening to them. You know, you sent them to me, and I'm uh, grateful for that because I was listening to them, and... And out of the the songs you sent me, I got to tell you that uh, "Messages from the Dome" was the one that really, really resonated with me. All right. Well, Kevin, the the strange thing is, near the end of "Messages from the Dome," that weird signal comes out real loud, like a. I likened it to a, a high pitched lady's voice yodeling. Hmm. And I sent those signals to Bob Edwards that works for George Lucas, and he's a great engineer. I've known him for years, and he ran it through a spectronometer, and he said, Merle, there's actually three signals there, and that high one is the one that's carrying some sort of a message. Well, when the album came out, uh It was getting a lot of play on radio, and I was doing interviews. And I was doing an interview with a station in London, and when it got to that particular part, it shut their mixing board down. Really? Yeah, and the engineer had to talk to me on the phone then. The host couldn't talk through her microphone. Well, they called me about, oh, three weeks later and said, yeah, whatever that was, it erased all the presets in our new digital mixing board. And we had to have the techs come in and reprogram it. Well, it ended up doing the same thing to Ken Hudnell, who has a radio show in Texas. When he played that song, it was fine till it got to that end part bingo it shut him off same thing happened with a station up here in sacramento and but i'd done a lot of radio interviews and that those were the only three that i knew well they all had newer digital mixing boards Hmm. the interesting thing it didn't affect any of the analog (laughs) boards (laughs) <laughs> well, it's funny you mentioned analog, and that's exactly what uh, Greg Martin and I were talking about, going back to the world of analog. It's, it's funny that that gets brought up in this conversation, too. That's fascinating on the, the technology because, you know, we were discussing a little bit about um, last week about the energies that we as people have. I mean, and what about the technology that we have and the energies that's emitting from them? We don't know what they're really doing and how they affect us. I guess we're all kind of just shooting from the hip, so... Um, is, is there, is there, a, there's a, is it a combativeness between analog and new technology? Is, is that, I mean, we, are we going to get away from an, analog or do you think that'll always be here? Well, you know, Willie Nelson is a friend of mine. I played with him several times. There's a video of us on YouTube doing wipeout together, <laughs> Nice. but he loves his old 16 track analog machine. And whenever he can record, he records on that. William McEwen was an analog guy, too. He had a 2-inch 24-track, and he mixed down to a half-inch 2-track. And that album I did with him, Return to Moo, is one of the best recorded. And uh, my studio that I have here attached to my house is a mixture of analog and digital. And... um, you know, I think there's a place for both of them, right. and it's it's how you use it. You know, so, and I remember Neil Young didn't even like CDs at first till he <laughs> developed his higher sampling rate uh, CD thing that he he liked. You know, but, right? But there's still a lot of holdouts that still <laughs> want to record their basic stuff on analog. It's. I mean, have you noticed any kind of uh rub between the analog and digital in your studio at all or do you they they get they play along nice with each other oh yeah it's fine i record analog things and then mix them down over to digital i've recorded on digital and 
mixed it down to analog, and I have no problem. Uh, when Bob Edwards analyzed this signal, he said there's something in that. <laughs> it's like it's talking, and he said that's where the rub is with something to do with our newer digital, you know, right. stuff. And uh, it didn't like it. it. It fritzed it out, and it's still a mystery. Uh, you can go on um, on the Internet and type in Merle Fankhauser's signals from Malibu, and there's even a couple of videos there. And uh, also, uh, it shows the cover of my album. And on the Internet, you can see this dome-shaped building with these very tall pillars. And there's a big opening in the front, big enough for something large to go through. And uh, I was doing an interview on a station in San Luis Obispo, and a lady was hearing it, and she called in, and she said, uh, I was a, a teenager in the early 50s, and, my aunt, and we lived in Malibu, and my aunt and I used to go down to the beach and watch the lights going in and out of the water mm. at night. And so this has been happening clear back into the 40s. And I was living up here and playing at a ballroom in Pismo Beach in the late, late 50s and early 60s. And one time a group of us went down to Malibu to go surfing. And we surfed all day, and we were ready to go home, and these local guys were making a bonfire, and they said, you guys ought to stick around and watch the lights go in and out of the ocean. And we're going, what? Hmm. So we're driving home, and my buddy Larry, he's laughing like mad. He says, oh, they're seeing pelicans diving, <laughs> you know, because they do that up here at Pismo Beach, too. So we never thought anything about it. But then after, you know, I got the signals and started studying all of this, I went, hey, wait a minute. Something's been going on down there for a long time.
you know, I, I'm L.A. born and raised. You know, you don't really hear too much about UFOs in the city area, I guess. Um, I mean, what, what part do you live in? I'm in the San Fernando Valley. I, I lived with my band, uh, two different bands, HMS Bounty and my band Moo, in Woodland Hills for quite a few years. And I lived part-time in North Hollywood and even a stint in Van Nuys. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Yeah, so you're familiar with uh, with where I'm from. Uh, but there was no stories of anything underwater until I started, you know, off the coast of California, until I started actually talking about aliens on my show in 2015. And then it, you start reading stories, and then it's, you know, it's, it's a base under Malibu. It's the, off the coast of Monterey, um, near Hawaii. I mean, I mean, the, these are places that would be a perfect place for them to hide you know if there's going to be a base yeah. underneath us i mean like who's going down 700 to you know feet to a mile deep no one is you know i mean that's yeah it's, and and just real quick i when i lived in uh phoenix arizona i went to the ufo congress so it's every year they have a an event there and they talk about everything strange and unusual like my show is and <laughs> there was uh we were talking to some native americans and it was kind of off 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 the beaten track we were just kind of chatting and they were telling us that yeah, in the mountains here, in, in kind of like there's a creek or there's a little river or something like that flows through, they've been told that UFOs have been seen going into the water there. Hmm. So I, I, I don't, you know, I mean, it's like I, it's, it has to be an option. I mean, in the sense of like we talked about hollow earth. Is that a possibility being you yeah. know, the entrance of hollow earth being the South Pole? I mean, how are we going to know? We're never going to go to the South Pole and see a big hole in the earth. Yeah. Well, I lived on Maui for 15 years. I moved from Woodland Hills, and we had an album out that was selling very well on Era Records and United Artists called Moo. And uh, I found this book called The Lost Continent of Moo by James Churchward, and the whole band and I got so enthralled in it, we, we decided to move to Maui because it said that uh, the Hawaiian Islands were the mountain peaks of this continent. Mm. And several South and North American Indians claim to have come from a now submerged continent in the South Pacific. So we moved there and I started talking to some of the older Hawaiians that would talk about things like this. And they said that they saw lights when they were kids, and these were older guys, some of them in their 80s, going out of Haleakala Crater and going into the ocean and coming back up. Well, I'd been looking all of my life for a UFO and never saw one. And one night... We went to the top of the crater to watch the sunset, and there was a bunch of tourists up there also. And as soon as it got dark, this blue pulsating light came over the floor of the crater, and we're going, what is that? It's not a helicopter. There's no sound. And then all of a sudden, two smaller ones came out of it, and it went up above on each side and it formed a tetrahedron, an inverted pyramid. And the tourists were going, wow, what is this? And there was an older guy standing not too far from me, and he had been in the in the Navy, and he said, all my years in the Navy, he said, I never saw anything like this. And all of a sudden, they all went back together as one and shot straight up and disappeared. Well, we drove down the crater to our house in Haiku, and we had a, a reel-to-reel tape recorder set up. That was <laughs> 1973. And uh, I walked over, turned on the tape recorder, and got my acoustic guitar, and my song, Calling from a Star, just came out like it was already written in my mind and uh, we did a slow version of it on our second Moo album and then later in 1978 I recorded a studio version with Gary Malabar the drummer from Steve Miller's band and Peter Noon 
from Herman's Hermits sang with me on it. And that did quite well. It got on a lot of radio, and I sent you that track of Calling from a Star. Yes. And that, that was my first <laughs> UFO oh, wow. experience, and I'd been looking <laughs> since I was about 14 years old. <laughs> on working with those other artists you know they obviously knew what the song was about well, what kind of feedback did you get from all of them oh they thought i was a spaceman from from moo you know they said man this is uh, really incredible stuff i had some other really good players on it too that were studio players and synthesizer players and and uh, I ended up doing 
quite a few of those style songs. And um, I would come back and forth from Maui because, you know, there wasn't a studio of that quality on the island at that time. That's really cool. That's uh, I mean, it's being inspired by something. I mean, this must have been, was it profound for you when you saw the lights coming out of the dome there? I mean, out of the um, the crater? Was it uh, like, what was going on in your mind? Did you realize, was it like, just, I this is I was thinking, I'm, I'm finally seeing a real UFO because there was no way you could explain this away as it being anything else, right. you know? It, it, we were all listening, trying to hear something, and it was completely quiet. There was no sound. And the interesting thing is I was exploring the island looking for remnants of this lost continent, and the whole band and I were hiking through the crater. You have to stay on this trail. And uh, I looked out into this several-thousand-year-old you know, dried lava flow. And I went, look, guys, there's a pyramid out there. And they went, wow, yeah. And that, and so I started making my way over to it. There were signs that you weren't supposed to leave the trail, but I did anyway. But it was very dangerous. I had to jump some deep chasms that I couldn't even see the bottom until <laughs> I got close enough to take a picture of it. Really? And I got a picture of it, and it must have been, oh, I estimated 38 to 40 feet tall. And it was a pyramid coming out of the lava flow. And you could tell it wasn't part of the lava. It was too, you know, perfect and flat-sided. And uh, I made a mistake, though, Kevin, by showing it to a journalist that worked at the local Maui newspaper. Right. And he thought this was amazing, and he put it in the paper. And uh, all of a sudden, there was a knock on my door in Haiku, and it was one of the head rangers saying, we understand you left the trail. We don't want to encourage people to do that because you could have fallen into one of those deep crevasses and never been found again. And he said, we're not going to find you now, but we're going to give you a warning. So I kept the rest of my exploration to the jungle where an old Hawaiian guy showed me some very interesting pillars and uh, cut stone platforms that weren't Hawaiian. They almost looked like they'd been made on a milling machine or something down in this valley. Wow. And... Uh, Supposedly, some German archaeologists came there and carbon dated them at 10,000 years old. Mm. And on the desolate side of Maui, where the highway and the road ends, and there's nothing but a stone trail going through this lava flow, there's a whole ruined city out there. And the history is that when the Hawaiians came to the island from Tahiti, they found a white race living there. So there's history of those islands way before the Hawaiians got there. Yeah, that's yeah, it's very fascinating. Um, I've ne not heard any of that, so I'm glad to hear this. You know, because I'm, uh, it's, it's that I appreciate you sharing these stories. You know, with us. I'm curious on the the pyramid. What was the material of the, of the pyramid? Was it part? Was it the lava that formed the shape of the pyramid, or was it something different? No, it was something completely different. I managed to struggle over to the side of it, but I was getting vertigo then and dizzy, and I touched it, and it it was smooth. And the pictures are in my book, my autobiography, "Calling from a Star: The Merle Fankhauser Story." All of the ruins. I I got the publisher put them in in the book and it's available at Amazon. But uh, you know I risked my life to go there, and 
it it was it was not the lava it was too perfect and sticking up too far out of the lava flow hmm. you know i've read about lost consonants i mean it's it's part of the lore um whether you know whether it's um you know atlantis or it's lemura um is is that something that uh you're is is that something that is hawaii is hawaii either atlantis or lemura Lemuria. Lemuria, my bad. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And it's Mu, short, you know, for, for Mu. That's what uh, several books that I've read. There's even a book called Children of the Rainbow, written by a Hawaiian that talks about the people of Mu that were there before the Hawaiians were there. And it's interesting, though, you know, the Christian ministers uh, went there. And they tried to convert a lot of the Hawaiians from their what they called, you know, heathen beliefs. And they really tried to scare them into thinking it was it was bad stuff. So a lot of them won't even talk about it. And the interesting thing, though, is the ruins that are on the desolate side of the island the Hawaiians will just go to the edge of that and fish along the beach. But as soon as it even starts to get dark, they get out of there because hmm. they, they call it the king's burial ground, and they feel like there's spirits there. They're, they're afraid of that area. And I went out there with some some other guys that were helping me carry stuff, and and they thought I was very brave to go out into that area. Did you get a vibe? Did you get any kind of uh, feeling walking in there? Or Oh, yeah. <laughs> a few times I got goosebumps, and then I found this building that an old surfer told me about. He called it Lost City Hall, and it was about seven miles out at heavy trek and that lava heats up in the hawaiian sun and man you got to have a hat lots of water well i found this great big building he was talking about and it it was hawaiian made on the top it was all you know the stacked up boulders and how they make a beam and thatched roof but it didn't have a roof any longer because the lava had flowed through there. There's so many ruins that are half covered with lava. But over in the corner, there's a hole in the floor, and somebody had made a rickety ladder that went down there. And you could see where people had made torches out of things and gone down there. Well, I went down in there, and that same kind of cut stonework that I found in the jungle on the other side of the island, the walls and everything, it felt like I was going in some Egyptian hmm. temple or something. The whole floor and everything, it was perfectly cut stone and the walls. And then in both of the right and left corners, there were those pillars that looked like, they almost looked Grecian. They were knurled uh, on the sides. And darn it, the camera was out of film and the batteries were mm. dead because I went crazy and was shooting so much. Mm. But that was such a hard trek. And I did that when I was in my 30s. And then I moved back here to California in... Uh, 87 and I've gone back for a few visits but uh, and played over there but I didn't have the energy to try to go out into that lava field again. yeah well I, I, I'm wondering on your adventurism <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean you put your life at risk it seems like twice now for this I mean are you normally someone who just goes for a, a kind of a risky adventure or was this something that was kind of no, out of your norm to do no, being a surfer, and even when I was a kid, I was born in Louisville, Kentucky, and we lived near some woods and a creek, and even when I was a young kid, I was playing Tarzan and climbing around <laughs> in the 
trees and fishing and catching crawdads and that's just seemed to be part of my makeup I guess you would say and I was so enthralled by this theory about the lost continent of Lemuria that I was just the the other two guys in the band thought I was obsessed you know Mm. because every chance we'd get when we weren't playing I was often in the jungle or somewhere looking for things and they were afraid I wasn't going to come back (laughs) well let me um let me ask you as far as like um the exposure of this kind of knowledge you know um getting people to be aware that there are bases underwater or there are ufos underwater we don't know what they are but there are lights coming in and out that's been you know historically written down what's what's the overall purpose of this you know why is 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 this happening are we kind of just lucky to be on this planet and we're you know we're at their whim or and we shouldn't be aware or don't care about what's going on over there or should we be aware and and care about what what they're doing well i think there are certain people that are tuned into it i will have to say you know and uh those people want to know. Some people don't care. They're regular just to go about a nice, normal existence instead of, you know, like we were saying, risking your life to, to find something or get the answer to something. And what my experience has been, Kevin, I get a tidbit that leads me further on to the next thing, but there's always another mystery to solve. It's like songwriting. I've got almost 50 albums out now since I was, you know, discovered in Pismo Beach and uh, by some producers. We were playing at the Rose Garden Ballroom, the big ballroom up here, and they took us down. And because I was surfing and I was writing these instrumental songs, and the word uh, instrumental surf hadn't even been coined yet i was just writing instrumentals and putting surfing titles to them and right. recorded it it's always been on to the next <laughs> adventure and it seems like there's there's always another mystery to solve or you get enough to think okay i found it now you know <laughs> well i uh, yeah it's not i don't think it's ever good i mean but yeah we might not ever find the answers in a, in our waking life i'm sure yeah but, you know, as far as, you know, what you've learned up to this point in your life, uh, what what does it mean to you of being a human on this planet compared to, like, the other people who are just the rat racers? You know, I mean, like, I, do you feel like you've figured it out more than other people? I mean, I kind of feel the same way. I'm not a rat racer, and I'm an I'm a outside-the-box kind of guy. I feel like I'm winning the race in a sense because I'm not caught in that. Well, I definitely feel like I've been gifted in some way, Kevin. And in 1978, I I had been friends uh, for years with a, a songwriter and a singer that I loved called Harry Nelson. Do you oh, know yeah, who? of course. And I we kept in touch even when I lived on Maui, and he called me up and said, Oh, Merle, I'm having a big party up here at my house and the next time you're over here recording uh, I want you to come and here's a date so I went to the party and I came in and he introduced me and uh, said oh this is my friend Merle Fankhauser we used to write together for a publishing company and uh, he said he's going to play a few tunes for you so I played him a few of my uh space tunes on the acoustic guitar vocals and i looked across the room and all the people and i went oh my god that looks like john lennon Hmm. so it's when him and john lennon were having a a fun time on the sunset strip (laughs) that's awesome that's and so i played my song on our way to hana which was about seeing two ufos flying out of the crater into the into the uh, sunset and after I finished the song my nerves went away because he started talking to me and said that was very interesting what inspired that and so I told him 
and then afterwards they were having food and a lot of people went over to get the food in the bar and he and I kind of ended up in this alcove talking and he went isn't songwriting interesting you don't know where a song is going to come from and if you hear one uh, and somebody interrupts you or talks to you or you hear some music it disappears and he said I didn't write any of those songs in the Beatles I went what he said yeah my muse gave them to me I said that's interesting my best songs come that way I hear them finished in my head and I gotta write them down and record them and then go to an instrument and figure out how to play them (laughs) And my best songs are written in 15 minutes. And he said, exactly. He said, I call it automatic writing. And that's something that's stuck with me all of these years now. And I realized that I do have some sort of a gift for all of this. And I feel like it's been given to me. And... uh, People that on a lot of radio shows that I've done uh, say, oh, do you think the aliens are giving you this music? And I said, no, I can't really say it's the aliens, but it is coming from somewhere uh, because I get get these finished songs and uh, then I have to figure out how to play them. And uh, I just feel, you know, like I'm, I'm getting something that uh, is is important. Yeah, you're obviously very inspired by this. I mean, it's definitely yeah. sparks something inside you that is is meant to be you. <laughs> you know, right? I mean, it's, and that's and, and may, it's yeah. I wouldn't say you would be aliens either. It's it's just I, I I would say it would be just the overall phenomenon of it all. You know, yes. like just the, yeah. the the peculiarness of it, the ability to be like. Yo, you know we, we, you know we're not alone here. There's some really weird stuff going on here. There's some old ancient civilizations yeah. we no one knows about. What's going on here? You know what's really going on here? Yeah, on this planet. I mean, I mean, and does anyone really have the answers? And our wall paintings on caves and our you know urban legends that have lasted you know thousands of years are they legit or are they just you know bedtime stories? You know, I mean, it's hard to really decipher between. You know, reality and and what what is fantasy? And I think the fantasy of we wanted to believe that there are aliens, that they are they are watching us and and you know keeping an eye on us and what have you, um, because the idea of us being alone on this planet is I think frightening for a lot of people. Yeah, well, when I found those pillars in the cut stonework in the jungle, I knew right away that was from some other time by some other people. And uh, the one thing, uh, Kevin, there was a sidewalk that went down through the jungle, and I was right on the edge of the the water there of the ocean. And the sidewalk went out under the water, and I could see a good 50 to 75 feet out. And then I saw where the lava, the previous lava flow, had flowed over that sidewalk. So... That lava flow was very old, so yeah. I knew that sidewalk was older than that lava flow. So somebody was there a long time ago and did that. Yeah, that's... <laughs> and all this stuff's been buried, not just, like, literally buried, but also buried, like, you know, uh, you know, knowledge-wise. Yeah. The one thing I really did also want to mention, Kevin, is my song, Peace in the World. Yeah, I want to get to that for sure. Because this is really something interesting that happened. I wrote the song uh, on Maui in the 70s, and it never got recorded and uh, till 1986, and I was over here recording. And somehow it was one of those songs that just got put on the shelf. And so we recorded it in 1986, and I did a whole album that had some similar Spacey-like songs on it. And uh, a very talented artist on Maui, 
came out. I had a cabin in the jungle also by a stream where I would go to write that I built. Up on the hill, there, the Haleakala crater was in back of me, and he took a picture of me, and he went in town to his studio to paint it. And I said, okay, I want two UFOs hovering over me, and can you put a little alien band around me playing with me? And I was standing up there with my Les Paul guitar. He did this lifelike painting that was incredible, and that's on the cover of my Message to the Universe album, and that's what Peace in the World came out on. And I had lost friends in Vietnam, and then, you know, every time somebody had wanted to start a war and the problems with Khrushchev and all of that, I was kind of inspired in my hippie daydream uh, to write this song, and I was pleading for all of these you know, tyrant, uh, dictator-type people to stop mm. and take a bow and let's just give it up and all be peaceful here on the planet. Right. And that some people are just holding to this cloud praying that, you know, we're not going to have nuclear war. Well, a bunch of... It came out again, a label in San Francisco put that whole album out on CD because it was only out on vinyl previous. And they put it out in 2011, and all of a sudden DJs all over and on the East Coast found it and just started playing it. And, and playing, they zeroed in on Peace in the World, and everybody started playing it before I knew it. Stations here in California were playing it, Las Vegas, Texas, and New York is where it really started. And then my uh, film sync agent that I have in New York, I have a bunch of uh, songs and movies and TV, he called up and told me it was getting played back there, and he just made a deal to have it put in a... TV movie mini-series called Candy, and I guess they're producing that now, so Peace in the World will be in that. That's wonderful. The, the next thing I knew, it was getting played on two stations in Poland that had had the CD that had been playing me for a while, and then a writer for a music magazine in Hungary called me up and interviewed me about it, and he did this beautiful magazine article, and he put it in English on the Internet. I'll have to send that to you. He really did a good job. And so the label in San Francisco said they started getting some orders, so they sent it out to 700 radio stations that they had that they normally send their stuff to and I had an mp3 of the song made and I sent it out to about 300 stations I had and at last count we were on over a thousand stations wow. worldwide now that's great that's I mean that's a snowball so that's, there, man. And, and when I listen to the song Kevin it fits so much yeah what's happening now it brought tears to my eyes. I, I went, my God. And one DJ said, Merle, do you think this was actually a prophecy? Hmm. I said, I don't know, but it sure fits what's going on now. It's, uh, yeah, you know, and that's the thing I wanted to ask you as far as this being, you know, almost a 50-year-old song. Um, I mean, how relative it is today, you know, it's... It's it's kind of a sad statement on society that we're still in the same predicament that we were, you know, back then and even you know, even further back. As soon as you know, powerful weapons became, you know, the uh, the soup du jour. Yeah. Um, so it's, um, it, you know, I'm hoping at this point right now that you know where we're at in our in our world with you know dictators and and fascism and and people who just want to take control and think they know what's best for everyone else. Um, you know, I, that I, I kind of have a feeling myself that that's on the way out. 
I hope so. I'm praying that it is. And yeah. you listened to the song, right? You heard. Yeah, I heard song. the song absolutely. Yeah. And it's yeah. But it's it's uh, it's just, it's time. There's no need to anymore. We're all where we're at. We yeah. have no countries need any more land. Everyone's cool where we're at. The internet makes the world smaller and more. You know, uh, I don't know what it does, but in a sense of like. You know, it, it could bring us together in a, in a better way as opposed to the way it's happening and unfolding today. But I think a lot of people are coming to their senses to this. Exactly. To balance this out, you know, it's tough because, you know, a lot of people are, you know, people get depressed and it's sad. And, you know, the threats of, you know, all out, you know, nuclear warfare. I mean, I, I don't think that's ever going to happen, to be honest. That's my own personal thing. Oh, God, I pray you're right. And Boy. and um, I, I it just... um. I don't know, man. It's it's frustrating to watch. And how yeah. do you balance a positive life? You know, how do you balance? You know, I mean, for me, I'm trying to like I, I watch the news. I'm I'm on top of things, but I can't let it affect me. You know? Yeah. It's it, but you know you have to have that sympathy, which you, you know which I do, but I also can't sit and dwell on it because I there's nothing I can do about it. Exactly. It just makes you depressed. Right. And, so yeah. it's it's just, you know, my, my suggestion is like, you know, focus on something that makes you happy, it, you know, and, and no, don't feel guilty about not feeling, you know, bad about what's happening. You don't have, yeah. you know, it's a, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, there's, there have been sightings of UFOs, you know, over Ukraine um, recently. So maybe, huh. maybe they are watching. There are stories of UFOs over military bases, you know, disarming nukes. So yeah, I've heard about that. So yeah. I mean, I, I don't know, but I don't know if every, you know if 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 influence from other dimensions and other universes and other in other di- galaxies, how much of an influence they have on us if they do, and how many would be nefarious and how many would be uh, benign. Yeah, yeah. So it's a uh, it's a fascinating conversation, and it's always because it's 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 open ended, you know. Right. And it can go anywhere. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and utilizing, I think, what you've experienced and turning it into, you know, beautiful music, especially music with a message that's going to, you know, uh, help people. And, 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 and even your instrumentals. I mean, like I said, I got so, like, I really got attached to that, to the messages from the Dome song. And, um, oh, good. You know, so thank you. I appreciate what you've, uh, what you've brought to us. Okay, Kevin. <laughs> Have a good day. You too. Thank you, sir. I want to thank Meryl Fankhauser for bringing his stories to the show, and I want to thank Greg Martin of Kentucky Headhunters who connected me with him. And thank you, Greg. Thank you, Meryl. Appreciate it. Thank you, John, for even starting the whole thing off in the first place. Uh, what an amazing conversation. Obviously, there's so much more to the story uh, than what we're hearing right now, but wow, what a start off to get looking into like what's going on in Hawaii, man? What's going on on the West Coast underneath the water? I mean, as opposed to above the water, I mean, really. But uh, anyway, just amazing stories to hear, and uh, I want to dive deeper in, into these, no pun intended. So we're going to end the show with his song, Peace in the World. And you'll take a listen to it. He just talked about it, and uh, it'll take you on your own ride for sure. And that's going to be at the end of the program here, so it's just going to be just in a few seconds. So hang tight for that. You want to check that out. He's going to introduce it himself, so you'll hear that, and you'll hear his voice on the, the track itself. So that's coming up. I appreciate you guys. Appreciate your time listening in. It means a lot. And other than that, you guys know what to do, right? Stay strange and unusual. Until the next time, you take a ride on the Mothership Radio Show. Watching the skies. This is Merle Fankhauser. I'm sending out a special prayer in song to the people of Ukraine and everyone on Earth. From my Message to the Universe album, here is Peace in the World. so long that I don't really think it's worth the waiting and the weeks 
It's just that, you know, I would never have noticed if I hadn't happened to look out. You know, I looked around me and nobody else was looking out of windows or anything. The cars were going on because it's quiet. Mm -hmm. It's very low. It's not that you expect a sort of Martian in the sky. It was below rooftop level and it was just coasting around very quietly like a tourist, you know. Amazing. And it was just pot luck that I saw it. Amazing. Excuse the expression. <laughs> and I was straight as a die. I was, I was straight as a die. Ta-da!